Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. A powerful source of learning and culture in any organization can come from having a well-structured and supported learning community. It may be difficult in busy workplaces to prioritize creating and supporting learning communities, but the benefits of doing so are numerous and can be the glue that holds everything together. To discuss the impact of thriving learning communities and how they can be fostered, I'm joined by an internationally recognized education leader who has been creating learning communities for teachers in several different contexts and countries. Liz Free is CEO and director of the International School Rheintal in Switzerland, an IB World School. Prior to this role, Liz was the founding director of the International Leadership Academy in the Netherlands and the head of professional development at Oxford University Press. She is also global board member of Tess Institute and a strategic lead for Women Ed, an organization connecting women leaders in global education. Liz is also an author of the recently published International Perspectives chapter of the Amazon number one bestseller, 10% Braver, Inspiring Women to Lead Education. She is also columnist with Tess International and writes for publications such as School Week, International Schools Magazine, and Independent Schools Magazine. Thank you very much, Liz, for joining me today. Hi, it's lovely to meet you again. <laughs> yes, it's so nice to see you again. I, you've worked in a lot of different contexts in terms of learn, creating and fostering teacher professional development learning communities. How do you define what a thriving learning community looks like? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and when I think about that question, I, I would start as an educator, I would always start with the impact on the students that you're teaching or working for or supporting. And so if I'm thinking about an effective learning community and from a professional perspective, then what I'm looking at is, are we as learners modeling the expectations that we have of our students? Mm -hmm. So I'm in an IB school at the moment. So we have the IB learner profile. And I'd be looking to see whether the way that we learn professionally, can we evidence that as well? So it, it almost is trying to see the community as being the whole and not just the teaching or the teacher part of that but to see it more holistically right so you're also looking to be an example for the way that the teachers are learning and their professional development to be an example to the students I think it's about being an example. I think it's it's deeper than that. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's about the very essence of what you do and how how you are as an organization. Right. So we're always talking to our students about self-improvement and development mm-hmm. and uh, how we can do that over a sustained period of time, that we use professional expertise to challenge orthodoxies with our students and to develop their learning. You know, we talk about being in the learning pit and about it being uncomfortable and difficult and challenging. We talk about creating safe spaces for our students so that they can fail and they can be challenged and they can learn. And my question is, do we do the same for our adult learners? Absolutely. That's really important. If if we were to apply that thinking um, to adults, have we really uh, achieved that when we look at professional learning for school improvement globally? 
And as you know, I work in international schools. And so we're um, uh, communities in global transition, both our students and our staff. Mm -hmm. And uh, my question is always, do we have that feel? Or do we see teaching and learning as one thing? And then we see our own professionalism and our own professional development as something else. And how do you foster that? How do you discuss that with your teachers? What role does that thinking have? And this is a real challenge uh, that we're always, I think as a a service profession as well, we're always giving. So our energies are inevitably drawn towards how we prepare for our teaching, how we plan our teaching, how we deliver our teaching. And then the question is, is where is the time for the professional reflection and collaboration? And so this has to be built into the very essence of what you do as a school. It's got to be in every fiber of the Mm -hmm. school. And that takes time. Oh, and not just school, by the way, we were just discussing this earlier, is that it could be any organization as well. I was thinking back to my time at Oxford when we first met at Oxford. You know, and, and there I wasn't based in a school, I was based in a university, mm-hmm. uh, working on the professional development side with many, well, I think it was, I can't remember the numbers now, but over 100,000 teachers, a lot of mm. teachers, I think 13,000 schools. But the principles are still the same, is what do we know about how people learn? And that can be from a three-year-old to a, an 18-year-old or to uh, someone like me who's slightly older. <laughs> I'm just going to go with slightly, that's what I'm going with. Uh, and, and so, I, I and I find it really interesting that as educators we somehow don't think like that that we we see these things as being separate when of course they're not they're absolutely interconnected so I think as a school it's really important to come back like all organizations actually to your mission and vision who are you what are you trying to achieve how are you doing right now where do you want to be so it's all that Covey stuff you know starting with the end in mind what difference do we want to make if we engage in this particular activity as professionals in improving what we do, how will it look? How will it feel? What will be different? And so I start with those kind of questions and then start to build the models for development and implementation around it. Great. Well, yes, it's so important to always step back a little bit and look at why you're doing what you're doing and what your values are. So that's definitely extremely important. And as you said, schools are extremely busy places and hard to fit in the learning into your day. From your experience, what are the benefits? I mean, we know that there are a lot of benefits, but what do you take as the key benefits for taking the time in the workplace to continuously learn and to learn with your peers in a learning community? As a school leader, you know, um, a CEO and director, um, if we don't do that, we fail our students. Mm-hmm. Because if we're, if we're looking at that juxtaposition between research and education and practice, you know, there's multiple evidence bases that we can look at that, that show that teachers that look at, so not just teachers, but anyone in a school that mm-hmm. is self-improving, um, when you look at the cumulative effect of that, then that has an impact on student outcomes. So right. we would be failing our students by not engaging. So this is an ethical and moral imperative, actually. Mm-hmm. And core to what we should all be doing as leaders is how do we find ways to engage with this? So um, I'm thinking about examples of that here. So I started uh, at the International School Rheintel in the summer, which was very strange moving, <laughs> sort of global transition in the middle of COVID was an interesting experience. Uh, and then obviously coming into a new school at a time when we're, we're in a, um, a critical period, you know, globally, we're in facing unprecedented times. Mm-hmm. And the priority has got to be maintaining stability for our students. Right. And obviously, looking at the mental health and well-being of our students, we know how important it is to have the conditions for learning that are right, that students yes. feel safe. And quite frankly, they don't feel safe. Uh, this is not a safe time, you know, that we've got a period of volatility, uncertainty, 
And yet in the middle of that, we're still like powering through um, and that, you know, we will provide an education to our young people mm-hmm. and they will be successful. They are going to get their diploma results. And, and we're kind of still driving that messaging through our schools. What I would be saying as a school leader who's, who's kind of been immersed in this field for some time is that we have to look at self-improvement. We have to look at organizational self-improvement, individual self-improvement and collective self-improvement. Mm-hmm. And that that's tough when you're in crisis yes which we are all of us are in crisis at the moment um, both on a professional front and a personal front and um, it's a bit of an aside but I I think in the international community specifically we've been hit really hard our students maybe haven't seen families we've got families now that can't can't travel to different Mm. continents uh haven't seen them for a long time we've got parents that are grounded in all kinds of different places and so the world is not quite as it would normally be and of course this affects our teachers Yes, our teachers in our sorts of schools and institutions also have family in other parts of the world. And so in the middle of all this, we're still having the self-improving mantra. (laughs) So important, but extremely challenging. (laughs) Extremely challenging. And how do you do it authentically and sensitively um, with an understanding that if we haven't got the conditions for learning right for ourselves or for our students, then we're not going to make the level of improvement that we want. Mm -hmm. And so what what I've done here is I've started um, very gently. So we started with what are the priorities for us this year? You know, two years ago, a strategic plan was set that said we wanted to achieve this within three to five years. Well, things are a little bit off kilter now, and we've got to be okay with that. We've got to be okay with recognizing that sometimes the journey goes a bit left field, but the destination still remains the same. Mm -hmm. So the conversations we had from the very first uh, meeting that I had with my team, you know, when we met that first morning, it was a beautiful summer's day here in Switzerland. And it was, we kind of had that little bit of a respite from uh, COVID in that we weren't wearing masks at that point. It seems like such a long time ago now. Mm. But we sat there and we said, right, what are we really great at? What do we need to do better? What do we plan to do? What haven't we done? And what are we going to achieve this year? So if we're going to choose three things that as a school, we are, you know, it doesn't matter what happens. If we ended up closed, blended learning, partly in, partly out, half the school, not the other part of the school, half the staff off, you know, stuck somewhere else in the world, Mm. we will still achieve these three things. And that's what we focused on. Right. So we focused on one of the aspects was um, the vertical articulation of the written curriculum. So we started with school improvement. We also wanted to look some more at our child protection and safeguarding. And so that was another area. And then what we've done is we've collectively built professional communities around those areas to very gently look at that this year and how we can improve. But we've slowed it down. Yes, really important. And there are different times, you know, knowing when do you put your foot on the accelerator and when do you put your foot on the brake. And at the moment, we're kind of gently on the brake, you know, we're still moving, but we're moving slowly. Uh, and, And again, I think that's okay. But as long as we've still got our eye on it. Because the risk can be that you can become so reactionary that as a school, you're just in operational mode and it's very hard to dig yourself out of that. Absolutely. And especially in crisis or an unusual situation, even more important to gently have that community where you're supporting each other, you're learning from each other to be able to get through that. So I'm sure that's offering a lot of support to everyone on your team. 
Yeah, and I think there's, I talk a lot about as a, as a global profession that we, we have our school improvement agenda, which is very specific, we want to achieve this. We also have our personal agendas as well. And what I found in terms of professional networks is that we've got this kind of self-improving culture that we're trying to develop. Mm-hmm. But I found during this COVID period, the connection with other colleagues around the world is even more important now than ever before. And I fostered that myself. I build, I've got an amazing community of heads and school leaders, all kinds of amazing amazing people and we connect with each other you know we have little whatsapp groups and somebody is just you know if we're having a particular rough time or we're trying to challenge a particular thing or something's going really well or we've suddenly discovered something amazing around blended learning or somebody's had a really good idea about how as an international school you can support your local community as well so we're sharing these ideas and I think that's really come to the fore in a, in a way that was different to what it would have been what 18, 24 months ago. That's a huge part of it that you do reach out because at the International Leadership Academy in the Netherlands, where you were the founding director, you really made a point of not just creating a learning community and learning resources for the teachers at the school, but you really reached out internationally to connect with other schools, other teachers. Can you tell me a little bit about the reaching out and why that's important? You spoke a little bit now that it provides a lot of support, but what are some examples of the support you got and that you're getting now of having that outward looking perspective as well for your learning communities? I suppose we go back to the beginning would kind of make sense. So so when I went to the Netherlands to set up the International Leadership Academy, that was part of the British School in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And that's a group of five schools, five international schools. And what the school had found uh, historically is that they would invest in a lot of professional learning and development, but it was predominantly kind of one-off courses or off to a conference, but it was not a sustained endeavor. The other aspect is that uh, it would mostly involve sending teachers out or sending staff out and or bringing people into the organization but they would be translating something from somewhere else as opposed Mm. to having something designed for the kind of communities that we served so the brilliant thing about the International Leadership Academy is that it was a not-for-profit uh, self-funding organization where the BSN put a, the money that they would spend on CPD, they put it into the academy. Mm-hmm. And then they, we collaborated with other international schools and we co-designed particular programs. So it might be, for example, that we decided that we wanted to look at teaching and learning support in international schools. And that, that's an interesting area because you often find that on the international community, if you're an English medium school, and you're in the Netherlands or you're here in Switzerland or uh, you're in, I don't know, parts of Africa or India, if you, you don't suddenly have a load of teaching assistants just sat next to the school waiting mm-hmm. to be appointed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just, they're not there. But what you do have is a lot of accompanying partners, otherwise sometimes known as trailing spouses. I prefer the idea of an <laughs> accompanying partner. Right. My husband would prefer that idea too, um, <laughs> as he's an accompanying part- partner. And what we would find is a lot of schools would recruit them because they spoke English, which in some ways is quite a low bar. Uh, (laughs) But most of these people that are recruited to support teaching and learning in international schools, so students with special needs or students with individual needs or group support or lunch supervision, whatever it might be, or after school clubs, those kind of things, is that they're often highly educated. Mm -hmm. So many of them, I mean, the number of lawyers that I had as teaching assistants and, and people with quite significant education backgrounds, but not in the field of teaching and learning and so whilst they're brilliant we needed to do some kind of immersive experience as to what is high quality teaching and learning and how do you know how do you what does it look like in the classroom so the kind of questions we would be asking as educators all the way through is we've got to start at the beginning for teaching and learning support but in an academically appropriate way 
to the level that many of these um, particular staff would be coming in. And if you translated the kind of training that was available in the domestic system, that was predominantly aimed at school leavers that would be coming in with maybe a tertiary level of education, as opposed to a postgraduate education. Mm. So there's a mismatch straight away in terms Mm. of the way that you would work with that particular group in terms of the level of education and the life experience. Mm. So we would predominantly have staff coming in that would be in their sort of 30s upwards, whereas most of the training provision for teaching assistants is aimed at your 17, 18 year olds. So, I mean, it's a a little example, but what we were able to do was then identify, well, who's who's the world leading provider of programs around supporting teaching and learning? Mm. Um, What is recognized across Europe? Because we were based in Europe, but we wanted to be recognized in multiple countries. And could we design a program that was externally certified and supported? So we would know that it would have the rigor behind it, um, including in terms of the research base Mm. and the structure of the program. It would be sustained over the period of um, up to a year. Um, It was iterative. It involved opportunities for staff to practice. So they'd have have input, go away, practice in the classroom, reflect, feedback, and then develop. And so we were able to implement that from a level two program up to a level four program, which is a high level teaching assistant. And that was done with international schools across Europe. And so offered at cost where you're looking anything from what, I don't know, 700 euros, whereas because it was was all uh, not-for-profit and Mm self-funding, Whereas if you went to a corporate provider, you'd be paying 1500 2000 or more for a very basic level program that didn't actually meet the needs of the staff in your school. So that's a very granular example of how by working together, you can design something that's appropriate for schools like yours or institutions like yours. And what I've now discovered is the minute you do that, you create this amazing network. So it's now not just about the program, it's about the idea of supporting teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. And there's now a whole community of schools that are working together in that endeavor and sharing best practice. They're visiting each other's schools. They're having catch-ups, they're having meetings after school. So it's now created uh, an impromptu uh, network of teaching and learning support. And that's what I think is the real strength. Absolutely. That is a huge, huge strength and so many different organizations and industries. It's easy to get in your bubble of where you're at, but actually looking out and creating those communities, you gain so much, don't you? So much of their experience, knowledge, and as you said, the support to be able to create this program at a much lower cost because you were collaborating with others. That's really wonderful. So now you are the CEO of the International School in Rheintal in Switzerland. So you're full focus is not on the professional development aspect, but you are still fostering a learning community. So what are the, some of the practical ways that you foster this learning community when your attention is on many, many different aspects of the school as well? And it is a very busy place. What are some of the key strategies that you use? Well, I'd love to say that I've got this nailed, uh, but I haven't. <laughs> and it Everyone's learning. It's, 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 yeah, everyone's learning. And, it, mm-hmm. and you've got to build the, the culture. You've got to get the culture right in your institution. Mm-hmm. And this period has been, has been really challenging. You know, our, our focus has got to be core, core business. If, if you genuinely believe that the route to high quality provision is in self-improvement, then that focus has to be core as well. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to instill that through providing opportunities for staff to share their practice, empowering staff to be to have agency and to be 
the decision makers. Mm. So this is loosely in a way connected to professional learning and development. But I'll, I'll give you an example. So the, one of the priorities that we set earlier when I was talking about kind of the three things we will do, one of them was the verti vertical articulation of the written curriculum for our school, which sounds horrendous. I don't know why we call it that. Uh, but basically, it's write it, writing down what students should be, um, know and be able to do the intended curriculum for each grade. Mm -hmm. um, it just sounds really horrible when they describe it like that. Uh, it sounds painful, doesn't it? Articulation sounds like something you'd go to a doctor for. Anyway, but, but the, uh, so the, so that was one of our things. Right. But in order to do that, we had to, initially we thought, well, we'll just write down what we do. That's pretty straightforward. And then we started to think, well, is what we're doing the right thing? You know, if we're, if we're looking at, our, we focused on our uh, language uh, A, which is first language uh, languages. Uh, we focused on uh, mathematics and the sciences. So those are the, th the three areas that we decided to focus on. And when we started to write it down, we there, all this conversation started to happen about, well, we do that because of this, but actually we don't want to do that anymore because we think there's another way of, of making, of doing that better. Mm -hmm. So we scrapped what we'd started doing. And we said, right, let's, let's not look at what we do. Let's start with what is the world's leading structures for the scope and sequence of learning in reading, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. And we, we put teams together, uh, focus groups that researched, we allocated time in our staff meetings and inset days to go and research what are the world's leading provision in those areas, whether it's by jurisdiction or system or, or curriculum. Then we dumped it all into a great big folder. And then the staff then uh, were able to pull apart what, what they liked, what they didn't like, what resonated with us, what linked with our mission, vision and values. And then what do we want it to be? So we now get co-design. Mm -hmm. And so in order to do this, there had to be a level of professional learning and development. Mm -hmm. You know, there had to be an opportunity to review what is outside of our organization. What do other people think? And how do we know? So this, again, is a very granular example where we didn't start out saying, right, this is now a PD session on the vertical articulation of the written curriculum. Yeah. But it was, and it absolutely is. We started, you know, what is the vertical articulation of the written curriculum? Mm -hmm. You know, what does that mean? And what are we actually writing down and why? You mm -hmm. know, what's the difference between the intended curriculum and the experienced curriculum and the learnt curriculum? So we've been having these really rich conversations. And our plan was that we thought we'd have it, well, rather ambitiously, we thought we'd have it nailed by now. And we're nowhere close. <laughs> so we're now pushing that to the end of the year. But we will, by the end of this year, we will have now articulated what we think in our school that is based on that experience of looking outwards and looking inwards. So again, it's a granular example, but we've had to engage at a professional level and develop our own thinking and learning to be able to have the kind of conversations that are required. Mm, it's hard to carve out that time, the time that it requires, but it's invaluable, isn't it? To be able to really connect it with your values, connect it with the outcomes that you want and have those rich conversations. I think it comes to trust as well. Mm -hmm. So we have staff meetings and, and there's always this question around a staff meeting is once a week. It's um, an hour and I think 20 minutes long, which is very mm -hmm. long after you've been teaching all day. Yes. And that's the time when we're supposed to be doing that, that work. And there's this kind of idea that you had to be here and stay here till that, those hour and 20 minutes and we would fill that time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I knew that this work needed to, burn, to be done, but I also knew that if you've been in kindergarten all day and you've had children climbing on your legs, you 
been wearing a mask all day because of the COVID situation, your readiness to be able to really think about, you know, what world-class curricula and scope and sequence of learning is in reading, your capacity for that might be pretty limited. So what we've done is things like, well, we say, this is our intent. We want you to go and read about this. And can you come back within two weeks? And we're going to discuss it. You will use the staff meeting time. If you want to stay here in the school and do it during this time, that's fine. If you want to decide, actually, you just want to go home and you want to do it on Saturday, that's fine too. But on this date, you will be ready with your thoughts. And we're all collectively agreeing to that. That's fantastic. That's almost taking an asynchronous, uh, without the technology, but an asynchronous look at how learning happens, because you create that flexibility to make sure that people can do it in the best time that it works for them. But with the idea that there is a limit, and at that point, we come together. So it really combines the flexibility and also the ability to work together at the same time. That's really that's really great and important to have that flexibility. As you said, at the end of the day, it's quite hard to uh, still keep that conversation going when you've been doing that all day the, with children. So that's fantastic. And so how, how else do teachers find the opportunity to keep learning in a school where they are very busy and they don't necessarily get the chance to talk to each other? Because as much as teachers are very busy talking all day, often it's actually, there's not the time to talk to other teachers. Are there other little opportunities that, uh, that you've built in? Well, yes and no. Uh, one of the challenges, of course, is that the spaces that you'd normally have as collective spaces, we can't have in the way that we would normally. Mm-hmm. So we can't get the staff together. We can't, we're not allowed to meet in person. So we've been uh, replicating that with different online meetings, mm-hmm. but it's not quite the same. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> some of the things we do, which are actually quite funny, is that we decided things like at, at Christmas, we like, we have to meet as a staff. You, you have to, we have to have some kind of personable connection mm-hmm. because then we can have the other. Yeah, it's, it's about a bond. It's about the, the culture, creating an environment where we actually like each other. We might not mm-hmm. always agree on different things, but we, we are a collegiate school. So we do things like at Christmas, we put the drinks outside. Every, everybody got their coats on in full Swiss winter. And we all went outside and we put some music on and we had a few moments where we just celebrated together while still maintaining social distancing and not breaking any country or cantonal rules. Um, so it's, it's these little moments that you try to capture. The other thing is about telling the story. I often say to new school leaders when they're coming through, it's not what it is, it's what it appears to be that matters. And actually both matter is the truth, but appearances and understanding. And when you're busy behind the scenes or teachers in their classrooms with their doors closed, you're not really knowing what's going on. So um, some of the things we've been doing is we've been developing the use of social media for ourselves and our community. So uh, we've got the teachers, and this is a new thing they started doing this year, Something interesting is happening in their classroom that's related to the either planned or unplanned learning in the school. And they write, they write to me three sentences and a visual representation of it. So pictures, photographs of students. And then we share it. We share it via Twitter, via Facebook with the parents. And we're telling our story about learning and also Mm. linked in with our school improvement agenda. So we're looking at early reading at the moment. So we're finding opportunities to talk about that. So this is the low level kind of continuous buzz that Mm. we have, that everything that we should be talking about, even in this COVID period where we're talking about masks and distances and all those different things, is that we're still coming back to learning, whether that's our learning or our students' learning. And actually, the two are pretty inextricably linked, I think. Right. And that's a very important thing, isn't it? That these moments of creativity, moments of, of good learning that is happening, to be able to share that, not only do others know about what you're doing, but you're also 
fostering that conversation, that continuous conversation of, oh, I tried that as well. And okay, actually, maybe I should do that in my class. It's having that ongoing conversation using technology to enable that, which is absolutely fantastic. But I'm not sure. I I mean, I'm still finding the, the, the when I think about sort of pre-COVID life, when you ask a teacher, you say, so, you know, what was your, where did you learn most? Or what were the, what were the seeds of your learning in, in any given year? And most of them would likely say that they were at some kind of event or they were talking with some other teacher. Mm-hmm. It's often a conversation with somebody else that, yes. that stokes an interest or sparks that, oh, what about that? Mm-hmm. And for me, that would have been conference circuit mm-hmm. of the leadership conferences, whether that's more of the research-driven ones or some of the international school ones like COBIS or ECIS. And you'd have this content kind of being thrown at you all day some of it's interesting some of it isn't and that's okay but where the best conversations happen it's you know in the coffee shop or in the I shouldn't say that in the Netherlands actually in, in the cafe until <laughs> <laughs> right. so I've been out the Netherlands now for six <laughs> <Yes>. months <laughs> um, or you'd or you would you know in the bar in the evening when you're having a glass of wine and that's it's very difficult for us to engineer that in a situation that we're in at the moment Absolutely. and and to have these opportunities to informally share so I think very interestingly I think podcasts have kind of come into their own in the last six months yes and that people are using that to try and capture a little bit of this uh, but how we create the dialogue and I, I I think um, we'll probably come on into a moment. So things like Women Ed, which is a global network. Um, you know, I have a head teachers network that I'm part of. Mm-hmm. Is, is that using these to try and find opportunities to have informal conversations that, yes, might be linked to your school improvement plan, but might just be about how things are going and learning mm-hmm. from each other. Exactly. Those conversations that stem from either a conference or seeing someone do something really positive. Those conversations are the absolute essence, which is such an important part of a learning community. And so much richness happens in that, as you said. And uh, we're being creative with the technology, but uh, hopefully, you know, we can go back to to those in-person ones and continue using the technology as well. But you mentioned Women Ed, and you're very involved in this organization. This organization really supports women leaders in education. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what you do to support the development of women leaders? Well, it's for, it's for men leaders too. I love our, our male colleagues. For me, it, it's, it, it's this kind of ethical moral imperative is that as a profession, we need to have great school leaders. Mm-hmm. And we're a profession that's what around 78% female. And yet we're making up less than half of school leaders. So it's less than 40% globally. And then we start to look at the pay gap, you know, that in international schools, um, there's data that's just been released from CIS, exactly like for like number of years, senior experience as principals, same number of years as teaching. So you get rid of, you get, get this whole thing about having children stuff out, you know, that doesn't, it, it accounts for that. Right. And so when you take exactly like for like, we've got over a 23% pay gap. Wow. And what is that about? And, and why? Why, why are we not realizing the potential of our profession? Why in the international communities, when we so often talk about how diverse our communities are, I mean, how many schools do you see that say how many nationalities they've got in their mm-hmm. school? And they yes. look at the diversity and representation that they put visually all over their websites, all over their books. And yet, right. what does their staff look like? How diverse is their staff community? And what, what are the implications of having a faculty that don't represent 
the students that they serve. Yes, that's such an important point. If we're really thinking about this and we think about our mission and vision as an international school, where, like I said, we're an IB international school, we talk a lot about international mindedness, about being culturally diverse and inclusive. And I think we've got to be really honest and open that actually probably in some aspects of the work we do, we are not. And we need to be and we need to do better. But the only way we can do better is by recognizing the barriers that are in place for, in this instance, the profession. Mm. And for what I can see is that we have an amazing body of women who are not coming through to senior leadership. And therefore, we're letting our students down by them not realizing their full potential. So what Women Ed is, it's a global network predominantly through Twitter. It's completely not-for-profit, all volunteers all around the world. We're just under 40,000 people are involved in the movement, both men and women. And the aim is to try and redress the balance and make sure that we realize the potential of the profession. So it's about addressing some of the issues and the barriers, but also looking at empowerment and how can we support early career teachers to Mm -hmm. see themselves as leaders and again I think it's interesting that we talk about professional learning and development as somehow separate to teaching and learning that Mm -hmm. that somehow these are different things and then we we also talk about leadership that I mean I mean you you said a moment ago that you know teachers kind of are in their classrooms by themselves and what are they doing they are leading the learning of the students in their care every single day and so they are leaders by default as a Mm -hmm. teacher you are a leader Now, that doesn't mean that everyone makes great principles, although they probably could. So I I think how we, particularly in education, how we look at leadership and how we start to break the the glass ceiling for everybody Mm -hmm. is priority for us as a profession. And so I'm very committed to that. So the work with Women Ed, I've just become a global board member with TES. And so we're often looking at how can we be more inclusive in our work and I think this is a major priority particularly just not not in international schools but if we look globally and where the population growth is mm-hmm. you know we know that the youth population in parts of Africa for example and looking at literacy and illiteracy in youth populations we've got a real battle ahead of us in terms of the socioeconomic divide and yes. the political ramifications of not having high quality provision which is high quality provision for all including young girls you know they have a should have a right to an education and so I'll go on and on and on about it um I could it's for hours we could just we could just keep talking but actually we want to make a difference that's the key isn't it and if we can get one more young girl or one more boy or one more male teacher or female teacher to realize their potential then we've been successful in our work Absolutely. And there's going to be links in the show notes for that for for men and women who are interested in that, because as you said, it's about really serving the students and therefore representing the full spectrum of the profession and the education. So what can someone in a school other than get connected with uh, women ed? What can someone in their school do if they would want to really foster this work and this community? I think the first thing they can do is advocate. Mm-hmm. And, and when I, whenever I ask anybody, actually, is when I say to them, you know, who made a difference to you in your personal or professional life? And what most people will come back with is often a teacher, actually, that they'll refer mm-hmm. to, um, which makes me happy because obviously being a teacher. But ignoring that, it's, it's usually they say that somebody saw something in them 
that they may not have seen in themselves. So they might have said, oh, this has come up. You'd be really great at that. Or they're giving honest and critical feedback. So it might be, you give me this. If you did this, this, and this, it would really improve it. And you're, mm-hmm. you're making really good progress in this way. So for me, that has always been peer mentors. They've not defined themselves as peer mentors. And they, if I said to them, you were a peer mentor to me, they might not have used that language. But I've had that my whole career. And interestingly for me, that that has been predominantly male in my early career. It's been head teachers or colleagues who've given me the confidence to say, actually, Liz, you, you know, you'd be really great. What, this was a really good piece of work. What about doing that next? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what can I do to help you get somewhere? Or somebody that I can go and bounce ideas around. And they're just this kind of, I mean, I still have that now. I have a group of people who I really respect and I'll ring them up. You know, when I was considering my next career move, when I had made the decision that I'd, I'd kind of taken the ILA to the point that I was able to take it to and that I was ready to hand on the baton, I, I met with about five or six amazing people around the world. And I, ju- I just kind of said to them, look, can we do lunch or can, can we Skype and uh, have a conversation? I really appreciate your advice. And I would talk to them about what I was looking to do. And they would say, Liz, I really see this strength in you. And I think that's that's an interesting route. And that helps me formulate my own thinking. So peer mentoring and being directed in the feedback that you give. McKinsey had written a report about women, not in education, but women in lots of different professions. And they they found that, that women early career, so graduates, uh, when they when they entered into the workforce, they were more women were more aspirant than their male colleagues. But within two years, that had declined significantly below their male colleagues. And two of the reasons given: one was around critical feedback and not getting the same kind of feedback as their colleagues. And the second thing, which is something that I, as a school leader, can make a difference with, is that they don't see themselves in the leadership that they see. And so what that says is that we have a homogenous representation of leadership. That you have to be a particular type of person that you've got to be somebody in terms of schools who's going to want to work till late hours at night have no life work every weekend you know have got nothing else going on in their lives you know there's no room for a family you can't have children you can't be a school leader if you've got babies male or female school leader that you you have to be a particular and this comes into gender and ethnicity and diversity Mm -hmm. all of these areas so I work really hard uh, both in women to get different women or men involved that represent different types of leadership so my style is very different to somebody else's you know I'm a mum I've got I've got two children and I talk about that and I except my male colleagues I was actually at a, a board meeting last night for another organization I was the only woman in the room online room which was quite a strange <laughs> experience yes. uh, um, but what everyone was talking about they were talking about their children and this experience of COVID so humanizing that for both male and female leaders how yes. often do we hear our male CEOs talking about their experiences of fatherhood so and true. being a CEO and a father and and yet last night they were, but why don't we talk about it publicly? So yes. I, that's that's another thing we can do is we can just be more open about the humanity in the work that we do. That's really important. Definitely to stay open, keep the humanity, talk about our different aspects and leadership mm-hmm. comes in very many different forms with very many different strengths. So that's very important to keep in mind. You've given so much insight and really, really good suggestions on what to do. If someone wanted to improve their learning community in their school, in their organizations, is there one or two things that you say, these would be great things to focus on right now? 
Oh, it's difficult to say in terms of content. I, I'd say, I wouldn't say the content, I'd look at the process. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd talk to the people who are in the community and say, what, what is it that we want to improve and get collective agreement? The minute you've got collective, that's the hardest thing, actually, getting the collective agreement about what are we thinking and feeling and what, what do we need and what do we want? And then once you've got a collective idea of that is you only need one or two advocates who can say, right, we've got a plan and then just do it. And people will, will kind of be dragged along. So if you say you, you, we agreed that we were going to talk about or we were going to investigate this area. I've now found out more about this and it might be a webinar or a podcast or something. Let's watch it together. And then in our next staff meeting, we can talk about it some more. So in some ways, it's quite low level. But I would start with the building a culture of collaboration where there's equity so mm-hmm. whether it's the C, it's not it's not me as the director saying we are now going to focus on this because I've decided that. <laughs> Although I might want to decide some things, but it but in terms of collaboration, it's saying you know this is what we we agreed we wanted to achieve. But what do we what do you want to focus on next? So I think that's that's what I'd suggest in this time of COVID particularly. Yes, it's that continuous conversation, opening up the dialogue, creating that community by honest, open conversations everyone's voices to be heard and then really moving forward in that collective way, isn't it? I think that for the for the collective aspect of it, but of course there's the individual within that as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is definitely in this time when you're all at home, because <laughs> no one's got anywhere to go, is that you could take this time to really think about, you know, what, what does your career look like mm-hmm. in five years? What do you really enjoy doing? Mm-hmm. And how, what can you do to further your journey in that area? So I think it's worth looking at the collective and the individual individual and focusing on self too. Yes, it's always stepping back and looking at the big picture, the values, the objective, both personally and professionally. That's wonderful. Thank you very, very much, Liz. And before we end, I wanted to ask for your recommendation, something to read or watch that inspires you in this space that others might be interested in as well. I know the book Women Ed. Yes, so the the new Women Ed book, it was written, it's actually pretty amazing. It was written by the community itself. So everybody wrote for free, you know, completely voluntary. And we had over 120 chapter submissions of people wanting to write. And then we kind of chose the ones that we could. The ones that we couldn't, we've put into blogs where we can. And so this is the, the first book was 10% Braver, which is kind of a mantra for women ed, is if you can just to do that, that little bit more it will make a big difference yes and then the new book is called being 10% braver so it's mm-hmm. it's really about uh, individual examples of how have women and men become more brave in the work that they do that's made a difference to their personal and professional lives and my copy has just arrived actually literally the last couple of days yeah it's a well, good I look read. forward to reading the new one uh, the first book I've read and it was absolutely fantastic I really enjoyed it thoroughly and and highly recommend it. Well, Liz, thank you very much for sharing your insights and your vast knowledge. And uh, I really appreciate it. And as always, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you and very inspiring. So thank you. And likewise, we've been trying to do this for some time. So so it's been really lovely to catch up. And I think at this time, it's more important than ever before that we try and connect with each other and capture learning from each other so that we don't become isolated at this time. So thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Great talking to you.